Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 419, featuring Chris Edwards, who is one of the co-founders and the CEO of the Third Floor Visualization Studio. And I am not talking about an architecture visualization studio. I'm actually talking about a feature film visualization studio. Most people think of uh, visualization or uh, visual previs when they think of this, but they, he actually explains how visualization now happens completely almost the entire time where the film is happening. And that's why it's just basically a visualization studio. Uh, really cool uh, what they do. Uh, they talk about amazing technology, of course, their origin story. We get to find out why it's actually called the third floor, which is great. Uh, and also find out a little bit about, you know, the n- new technology that they've been developing. They talk, They did something called Eyeline, which they used on Avatar, The Way of Water. Very interesting to hear about that. And some of the new projects they've worked on. They worked on Mandalorian. They worked on a new Ant-Man. And they worked on almost all the major films that have happened in the last 20 years. They're incredible studios. So really glad to have Chris on. And I hope to have many more people from uh, the third floor on as well to talk about some of the cool things that are developing there. All right. I want to go through a couple of announcements here. A couple of events happening on April uh, 4th and 5th of 2023. We will be in Paris, France for BIM World. Paris. Uh, of course, if you're into BIM and you have all of that stuff going on, go check us out. We'll be at BIM World Paris on April 16th through the 21st, 2023. We will be in Munich, Germany for about uh, 2023. Uh, BAU. Uh, BAU is the world-leading uh, World Trade Fair for uh, architecture, materials, and systems. So go check us out there. Again, that is April 16th through the 21st of 2023. And that is in Munich, Germany. Uh, and if you want to know more about all of our events, we got a lot of money, more announcements, go to chaos.com slash events. Again, that is chaos.com slash events. And if you want to learn more about this podcast, you can just go to facebook.com slash CG Garage podcast or chaos.com slash CG Garage. And of course, you can always watch us, which is on youtube.com slash chaos group TV. If you have any other suggestions or ideas or anything you'd like to know about the podcast, or uh, just, of course, you can always email us. It's labs at chaos.com. Again, that is labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 419 with Mr. Chris Edwards of The Third Floor. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Uh, as you said, this is a, this is a two Chris podcast. I'm very excited to do that. Uh, I had Liz Montez on. Uh, a few months back, uh, or maybe. Oh, even, wonderful! Yeah, yeah. She, she's what a what a brilliant person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she was uh, she was my coordinator at DD way back when, way back when, <laughs> and mm-hmm. she's just an incredible person. And I'm really excited to see all the success she's had at Third Floor. And so I was ever since then, I was like, I really should get Chris on as well. <laughs> that I think about it, so I'm glad we finally made this possible. Uh, but let's let's let's. What I like to do to start off with is find out a little bit about your background. What got you interested in films in general? Obviously, you're a previous person, so films is a passion of yours. So what, where did that passion come from? Well, I guess I had to start at the beginning because it really came from my childhood. Like many in this industry, we were all inspired by some of the early science fiction films that were released during that time. For me, it was Star Wars Episode Four. Uh, you know, the first Star Wars movie my first movie in the movie theater wow. and really an inspiration um, at age three. <laughs> um, and since that time, I I uh, really had a, a love for Hollywood movies and then I discovered European cinema and all of the stuff that I watched actually on film, on 16 millimeter film that was available at just about every library that was around town, but no one seemed to rent them or take them home. So I did. And so anytime I was sick or sequestered for any reason, I would I would just watch the world cinema as best as I could. And um, and then I guess my interest was further heightened because one day my mom brought home that book, the the Black ILM book that explains the history of special effects. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got really inspired by not only what George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and some of the other pioneering filmmakers were doing, 
but the real artisans behind all of that great innovation that was happening leaps leaps and bounds um film over film and what was inspiring about it was it was like you know people coming from other disciplines other walks of life um and combining forces with other compatible artists uh, other people from different disciplines to do something that's greater than the sum of all of their skills and really at the time very much blow away audiences so i was like man i have to do this i have to get into this but of course there were no programs in school that would teach you to be a special effects artist or in the visual effects industry so just kind of choose your own adventure, right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, especially back then, for sure. Mm -hmm. So, so how, where, what did you start studying? <laughs> so, you know, I researched all the great filmmakers, and I said, well, what did they do? Uh -huh. Well, if they didn't just start making a film on their own, um, and they, they went to a little bit of college, they went to a film school, mm -hmm. usually a traditional film school. And so that's what I started looking into. I went out to USC, I went to CalArts, I went all over the place. I ultimately ended up going to RIT, which is Rochester Institute of Technology. I know where that upstate is. Upstate New York. Yeah, I went to Colgate. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of the dark horse. It's really, really um, underappreciated um, because it actually was born out of the, um, the work that was being done in Rochester uh, under Kodak, Mm -hmm. which used to be a kind of an important company in the film industry. <laughs> and uh, and so there was a great photography program and, and kind of an offshoot film and video program up there. So what I loved about it is that I got to really learn how to use the equipment. And for me, that's that's all I really wanted uh, to learn is is that and then to immerse myself in a community of other filmmakers so that we could... Uh, you know, chart our own path, which was not exactly what the university wanted me to do. They they wanted me to perhaps become a, a grip or a camera person or you know, work in New York City, perhaps, mm -hmm. uh, in the industry. I wanted to combine my passion for computer graphics at the time, which is sort of my hobby on the side, with what I learned in film language. And so, long story short, I had uh, to campaign really hard to do a final film there that they would allow me to do as a CG short. I did that all in my bedroom with the very first version of 3D Studio Max Student Edition. Right. And we cranked it out. Um, well, I cranked it out <laughs> and got a little help on the sound and, and whatnot. And, uh, and it was just enough to get me under the closing Indiana Jones door of the industry as I as I was at SIGGRAPH the following year and really trying to get in. Um, luckily, I had done a lot of internships, right, before and really ratcheting myself up from, you know, just uh, unpaid intern, night shift guy to, you know, being a little bit more vital to the production. Sure. And it was one of those instances at Cinesite when I was working for a woman named Jinko Goto, who's an awesome animation yeah. producer. Jinko took pity on my soul and gave me a, a killer interview at Disney Feature Animation, which is where I started my professional animation and layout career. And it became ultimately my first real job. Awesome. Well, she's actually been on the podcast. I met her this, uh, um, God, uh, at THU last year. So she, she was really, really cool. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. 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 She's a bright light and was always so kind to me. She gave me the interview of a lifetime so that I could meet the head of layout, which is the top dog for um, scene design mm -hmm. on an animated film, right? Um, this was a film called Disney's Dinosaur, if anyone remembers that yep. one. It was a really pioneering film because we had paleontologists and stop motion animators and traditional animation folks learning computer graphics for the first time. And they needed to put together a little team that could actually start laying out, like, what are these scenes going to look like around the story sketches that they had already worked out? And so they called it 3D Workbook. And 3D wor Workbook itself is just the next phase up from a story sketch where you're kind of halfway to layout. You're adding shading. You're getting a little more specific about the exact um, locale and staging of the environment and the characters. So that seemed to make sense at the time, the 3D version of that, mm -hmm. using soft image, 
Um, yep. And which was the only program I didn't actually know. So I started the first first day going, oh man, I, I should probably look into the manual for this. Right. Um, with my Disney badge and everything. But I, I picked it up pretty quick and and that became a, the little engine that could on, on Dinosaur that just, uh, I would think I was employee number three and there were up to six employees that were hired there for that. And we, we did the run of show um, staging dinosaurs virtually so that they could shoot those live action backgrounds. And um, we did a bit of what was then later called tech viz mm -hmm. to show the, the, the crew like where in Hawaii or where in what, whatever exotic location they were, the shot could look like from this GPS location and that lens. Right. So anyways, that's my origin story for understanding the power of computer-generated layout, a.k.a. previs. Right. And um, I was at Disney for five years, also working with the great heads of traditional layout, um, a guy named Razul Azadani, who's an amazing, brilliant gentleman who's, I think he's the longest-serving head of layout at Disney, uh, and uh, worked on uh, Aladdin and um, uh, so many other amazing uh, Disney classics. So uh, we were working together on Treasure Planet. Okay. At first, he was a little skeptical of what are all these 3D computer-generated people doing in under my purview when mm -hmm. I'm I'm really a 2D guy. Right. And he's he, he's uh, very passionate about his work. So um, you know, I really had to earn his trust. Right. And at the end of our whole journey, it was so great because he came to me and he said, you know, from now on, Chris, I, you know, I thought I wanted to do everything in 2D, but now I want to do everything in 3D. And he said, you know, please, you know, teach me how to do this and I'll teach you what I know about composition. It was just, you know, it's everything I didn't learn in film school that right. to this day I have carried into the, the visualization arts and, uh, you know, it's, it was an inspiration. But I knew that I needed to leave Disney in order to find my dream team, to be able to make a difference bigger than just an employee at a great company. Mm -hmm. And that's what my Skywalker Ranch experience became. Okay. So what were you doing at Skywalker Ranch? Well, you know, uh, there's so many... Um, people that tell different stories of how they got to Skywalker Ranch. But for me, it was actually just coincidence because I was working a job on the side with a guy named David DeZoritz, who's one also one of the awesome godfathers of the pre-visualization industry. He used to be the very first manager of the team that worked to support George Lucas at Skywalker Ranch, not as part of ILM, but really part of what they call Jack Films. Jet Amanda Katie films, I think that's uh, George's first. Uh, all of his kids, right? It's mm -hmm. so it's an acronym. Um, it's the production company that he surrounds himself with to pre-produce the movie and to do the editing, literally at the ranch in the old, I think Victorian house that he mm -hmm. he built um, on the second Star Wars movie. So on Empire, so or for Empire. So I ended up working with David Zoritz on a Peter Pan uh, remake sequel. Um, and uh, he, I guess I impressed him enough that he said, hey, you'd probably be good to uh, fill in some position that, you know, was coming available up there on now what would become Star Wars Episode Three. So because of that hot tip, I got the interview of a lifetime. And I remember it was so funny because I went in there and I was talking to the folks that were interviewing me and they seemed a little bit like taken aback when I started talking about my love for THX 1138, which right. some of you out there may know as the George's first professional film in the industry beyond his student film, which is, I think, called Electronic Labyrinth at USC. I thought 1138 a, was a student film, too, that they sort of expanded into a feature film. Well, that's what the Electronic Labyrinth at USC that I'm sure they, right. they show a lot to incoming students was the core concept, mm -hmm. the way I understand it, um, behind the world and the, the basic storyline of THX. And I think that's what was then shown to Coppola Yep. To who then took a liking to George and his concept and gave him guidance, maybe funding. I'm not sure who funded mm -hmm. it, but it was not a very 
expensive film. And then George, like he, he did magically years later with Star Wars, um, A New Hope, uh, he made a, a mountain out of a molehill in a way. And it's such a beautiful way by shooting buildings in THX 1138, the feature with Robert Duvall, shooting buildings that were a little hippie, a little Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright, um, little strange buildings that from different angles that would give uh, the impression that this is a futuristic world. So it's about the choices he made and what not to show that created such an otherworldly um, film for cheap. And um, so it became pretty clear that uh, George Lucas was very, very um, into this this subject matter that is is all over THX 1138. So when we started, when I got that job, because um, they said I'm the only one babbling about how cool THX is, is, and by the way, we're doing a special edition director's cut version of that yeah. movie, so I guess we have to hire you. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting that gig, and that was our, quote, trial by fire, if you will. Like, if we could survive THX, the the remake edition, then we'd get to know George, we'd ingratiate ourselves, and he would trust us and have a secondhand, I guess, rapport creatively with us, and then the reward was, hey, you get to work on Star Wars Episode Three, Right. And uh, so we did that for the remainder of our time there, uh, which turned out to be about a two-year stint if you combined THX and uh, and Episode Three. We also worked a little bit on uh, the uh, War of the Worlds okay. uh, remake film, uh, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. It was such an honor to work with him because we had worked a bit on Star Wars sequences that he had kind of ghost-directed um, with George. A couple of sequences that George invited him in to to uh, help do the layout for. And and so I guess he, he Stephen really liked the process and he applied it to some of the more uh, complex shots and setups in uh, War of the Worlds. So, so we felt like at the end of that, crazy experience that we had this unbelievable experience that we had a lot to offer the world but nobody knew what we were doing and we were so behind the scenes that we really just wanted to find the best way to set up a little storefront do the road less traveled if you will we it would have been probably pretty easy for all of us to individually get jobs at various visual effects studios with our pedigree and some of the stuff that we could talk about, but probably couldn't show at the time. <laughs> um, and uh, yet we decided to not do that, resist temptation, because if we had all scattered to the winds, we probably would have never been able to keep that family collaboration that we had. So uh, against all odds, a lot of the folks, they moved down. Most of them moved into my house, which since I was from Walt Disney Future Animation, I, I knew the L.A. area. I had a house uh, down there, so I ended up uh, hosting them for a little bit, just long enough to get our company going, get a little revenue going. I ended up working a day job at Sony Imageworks and loving it, uh, supporting Sony Pictures animation films. So it was like me leaning on my old school job of, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at feature film layout. So they brought me into this amazing team that was working on open season Oh, right. The very first open season and then surfs up after that with the Rob Bradow. Right. And under the great James Williams, who is a awesome um, layout supervisor who went on to work on a Spider-Verse movie. Right. So anyways, good pedigree of folks that were there. But I remember like a lot of my uh, colleagues are saying, man, it was, a, it was a grueling day. Ooh, we really got through a lot of work and good job. I'm going to go home and I'm just going to crash. Mm-hmm. And I, I would chuckle and go like, uh, well, you know, that I'm about at halftime right now because now I'm going to go to my office and I'm going to work my other job, which is my passion, right. to build this company that we call The Third Floor after our time on the third floor of the Skywalker Ranch House. Uh-huh. But it wasn't on the third floor. It was on the 10th floor <laughs> of a nearby Art Deco office building. Right. Um, so, yeah, so we got through it and th- through the perseverance of my fellow five other co-founders of the company 
all from Skywalker Ranch. Um, we we got through like what I call escape velocity. So we we ended up having enough work to hire a couple of employees and uh, and an HR person at one point, and we're just thrilled because you know we really didn't have a, a strong business plan. We were just like, hey, we like doing this. We're going to share our passion with the world, and fortunately, it's worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the thing that I've always thought was fascinating about about Previs is that it is really, in my mind, the closest thing to filmmaking that's in CG <laughs> in a lot yeah. of ways, you know, because a lot of the stuff that's done in post, it's very, it, it's definitely filmmaking, but not, you're not as closely connected to constructing or figuring out how to do a shot and working with the directors and working with the editors and working with the actual uh, production process. Uh, what is it, what are your thoughts about that? And is that sort of the thing that sort of attracted you to that, to, 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 to previous? Well, for me, it was observing what was happening in animated feature development mm. that I, I saw how pivotal the 3D workbook or later on the layout reel was. And, and even before that, the storyboarding reel, right? That is the guide wire that everyone was using in their various departments with their amazing skills to then you know add clay to the sculpture and get do it in in this collaborative art form that we're all doing together i mean it's it's really a madness when you think about it like trying to follow the auteur's vision but also um you know being open to happy accidents and and also not upstaging the director's vision but but bringing your a-game as a department chair if you will to to bring the best production design, bring the best cinematography. And so there's a lot of communication that goes on naturally, whether it's a live action film or animated feature or a hybrid visual effects driven movie. Um, so I saw, you know, a huge gap of, of need, if you will, for a blueprinting process, a, you know, a place where we could treat the film like a sandbox where we can have a representation however rough of what everyone wants you know sure. it's a little bit of the production design it's definitely the lenses that the dp might want to use um you know it's it's all of the early effects experiments and how that might that tech viz that comes out of the the exploratory process how might that inform the rest of the visual effects uh development early enough so that you actually have all all of the people downstream will have a lot more time to pivot and to build the best and most impressive seamless effect um you know lessening the surprises and also lessening surprises for the studio themselves but it is a constant balance right you 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 don't want to get locked into your viz you want to use it as a constantly evolving sculpture or um you know, representation so that every day you should be able to come in and it's like, how's my film going? Right. Well, let's watch it. Let's <laughs> go hone in on that problem area. And um, so we become kind of soothsayers of the entire communication between all the departments. And you, as you imagine, as you might imagine and, and know out there, uh, there, every production is different. Every film is different. So many different personalities. So it is a bit of a, of a customization of the visualization process wrapping around like what already exists there. And then also onboarding new players when they come into the show, like, Hey, there's this reel, you can watch it and you can kind of orient yourself. This is generally how the director is envisioning coming into this scene. And then you're going to do your part of it. So this is how it would fit in here, but we're not nearly as good as you guys because you're going to do the final version of it. So please, you know, just use this as reference at the very least. But these days, actually, a lot of the viz is um, becoming, you know, upgraded to the point where it actually has a life in the final image at some point. And not, not in every shot, but uh, it's definitely becoming more the norm, especially in virtual production, where we end up um, informing the all of the preloads and and uh, the placement of objects. So it, it act actually, it's it's funny. It's like my life's coming full circle. It's all coming back to becoming feeling more like an animated movie, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. yeah, I definitely want to get into virtual production because I know that the, you guys are, are are have been you know 
a natural transition into that area over the last several mm-hmm. years. But I am curious about listening, you know, talking about you know a previous artist and what a pre- what makes a great previous artist because I think that they're they are way more generalists than they are specialists mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. What are your thoughts? Like, what, 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 if you're going to look at a great previous artist, what, what does that uh, person need to be? It, a generalist used to be kind of a bad word um, back when there was so much rigor in the visual effects process that you really didn't need an assembly line. You needed like absolute perfection and expertise at modeling, and those mm-hmm. people would only model and. Mm-hmm. They, then there were the texturing guys, you know, and, right. and so on and so forth. But um, over the years, we've championed the the use and the value of generalists, like true generalists that can do a, a little bit of everything, um, which is an imperative to most of the 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 previs or the visualization process because it is about being spontaneous and not being kind of held up by any other person or process on your team. You need to be able to MacGyver a solution together and do it in the construct of reality so that it's the right scale. It's not a a BS um, representation of what it is that you intend to propose or represent, but it is is very um, uh, real time, if you will, or as close to real time as possible. and so that's what we say at the core is like if you are adept at using your tool of choice, which is usually Maya and increasingly so the Unreal Engine. So we'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a bit. But um, if you know your tools really well inside and out and you embody uh, a real passion for filmmaking itself, you touched on it earlier. I mean, we're, you know, we can be awesome technicians, but unless we're representing filmic choices or making suggestions for how things could be improved compositionally, staging wise, um, you know, recognizing potential problems in an, in an edit. I mean, we're not always editing the film. We're definitely not the editing the final version of the film. So, but to be able to provide editorial and the director with various angles and cuts and things that actually have some chance of cutting together pleasingly uh, is, is important. Or else, really, you're not pulling your weight as a professional visualization provider. Um, so that's what we love about it, is the, it is really spontaneous. And when we get into a good rhythm with the previous supervisor or creative director that is on our side being the, the front person for live collaboration with the uh, director or DP or sometimes visual effects supervisor, second unit directors, even the production designer, everyone uh, who is accessing directly and manipulating the previs, um, you know, creates a rapport with a couple of people in our production, but primarily it's that previs supervisor, just like you'd have a visual effects supervisor. Mm-hmm. We have a previs supervisor and, and uh, the trick is to have that previous supervisor prepared enough for the unknown, but with a good knowledge of what that director or designer's style is and what they typically like to ask for. So for some filmmakers, they just like to see the cut and they want to see it in, like they want to watch the movie that they have prescribed and they're very, very specific. And so we work really hard to create multiple iterations of that and cut it together or work with the professional film editors to make that happen. Um, and then we sit in and we take notes and we do another version the next day or the next couple of hours. Other directors are more, much more exploratory mm-hmm. and they're like, well, you know, this is the general inspiration. This is this, you know, here's some really visceral moments that I want to get out of the script that I'm going to describe to you, but all the shoe leather of how all this fits together they're not going to spend waste their time, you know, explaining that shot by shot, or even sometimes giving us boards or anything like that. So mm. it's incumbent upon the previous supervisor and the, their generalistic skills, grounded in film language and a real passion for directing, basically, um, that they are able to um, channel the director's intent and then provide something that's worth consideration to um, 
potentially take even pieces of that and put that into the order for the final film, if you will. Sure. So, yeah. But uh, I would say that just to finish answering your question, there are now uh, quite a few sub-disciplines of visualization. That's why we stopped, we dropped the pre um, from the big moniker that... Yep the big umbrella over our company. And we just now, instead of pre-visualization, it's just visualization because visualization process doesn't just end with pre, mm-hmm. right? There are post-vis artists, there are tech-vis gurus, there are motion control uh, crazy people, and <laughs> there's so so many other folks. Um, even within just the regular old pre-vis service, we have asset builders, which are our world builders, more than modelers, mm-hmm. modeling, texturing, effects elements, bringing the world to life, making it feel like a persistent environment. So it could be like the world of Pandora, it could be a Game of Thrones set, and the characters that need to be rigged. And then we pass that on to what we call a shot creator, because we couldn't come up with a better term that we were like, oh, animator, yeah, but it's they're not just animating. Mm-hmm. They're staging, they're doing some... Uh, representation of the potential cinematography, all of that. So, um, yes, asset builders, shot creators, previous supervisor, and then, of course, our line producers and coordinators on the production staff that really make the world go round for us. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's quite it's quite an interesting discipline, and it is really such an, an integral part to filmmaking these days. Uh, you know, it was kind of unheard of to do, you're going to do the whole thing in CG before you shoot the movie. And it was just kind of yeah. this strange idea. And it was like, why don't you just use storyboards or something like that? Right. And so I yeah. think, I think it's really interesting that it's allowed filmmakers to just really kind of explore things and in a sense, save them a ton of money when they're actually shooting. Right. Well, it's not. You know, I always say it's not about saving money. It's okay. about maximizing whatever budget you have and getting more of that on the screen to your liking than on the cutting room floor. Right. Because filmmaking is inherently a destructive process. You got to sure. try. You got to throw out lost leader. You may even commission a fancy visual effects final that you realize in the end, well, it's beautiful. Thank you very much. It just doesn't fit the mood at this moment, or we're showing off too much. It's it's more of a sentimental moment. We got to cut to the close up. Right. All is it's all in service of making the best film, which is the right approach. But what? But if you can identify some of those potential pitfalls or you know magical advantages before these magical moments, then then you can have enough time for the whole rest of the process to build to that vision. Sure. I mean, it's just, that's what you do when you build a building, right? You have yeah. the, the great architect will come in and, and con, you know, consult with the clients, know what human behavior is like, a.k.a. the audience. They, mm-hmm. you know, they, uh, they prescribe the vision in a concept painting, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then they have to go in and start designing every facet of this. And at some point, someone knows how many screws and how many bolts and how much lumber they need and how many windows they need to order and when. And filmmaking is like that, but it's not just one building. It's a thousand buildings and locations and so many other factors that have to come together. It's, It's actually a miracle that any movie, even the worst movie on earth, you know, like it's... I'm like applauding them like, wow, you got it done. You know, like it's incredible. And and to on top of that, make something that is emotionally impactful and like fans out there just like turn into their part, absorbed into their culture, into their their personality is, is incredible. We love being a part of that. And we love celebrating with our clients to see like um, some of the influence that we might have had along the road or the assistance that we provided. We love seeing that like just blossom on the screen. And we, we usually, you know, we, we stay really humble. Uh, we really do genuinely feel that way. Like, you know, we're just blessed to be a part of the community sure. uh, that has contributed to this. And we, you know, so when the Academy Awards are announced, we're not saying like, why am I not up there? You know, it's like yeah. we're all just celebrating the the film itself and and all the great human relationships we've had along the way um and that's what's really um fulfilling for me because it's like at the ranch i met all these random people that i didn't know if they're going to be good or bad or or nice or or mean 
And they turned out to be awesome and I and eclectic with their different skills. And when we gelled and I kept that family together. And now with Third Floor, the company, I've been able to invite all these amazing rock stars from around the world that just are just such lovely, lovely human beings that have contributed to our culture. And it's now it's just like a snowball that's going like, yeah, I can't stop it anymore. Um, you know, when we're busiest, we uh, so far we've had like 500 employees working globally around the world out of four offices. So it's a it's a pretty decent sized operation now. And but uh, it's I'm proud to say it's grown very organically, and we've we've stayed very true to our principles. You know, artist driven environment, treating our employees as, as we would like our clients to treat us and, um, and vice versa, you know, like really creating a benevolent community because I mean, ultimately we're selling our creativity, you know, <laughs> you got to have happy people. They got to go home and have a work-life balance in order to like, um, be their best creatively or, um, be the, the best innovators technically. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, I've just always been really impressed with, with, uh, third floor. I mean, I remember, Previous companies were kind of popping up here and there, and there were you know, smaller mm. places, 20-person shops or less, um, mm-hmm. and it became a big thing. And I think I remember a couple of years ago, many, many years ago, there was an organization that was trying to create a previous community. Is that true? Previous society. The previous society. I'm very proud to have been yeah. part of that. Yeah. Um, me and the other heads of other prominent previous companies around yeah. that time, yep. we all basically started around the same time there's a few that started even before us um technically and um and we were fast friends we we put our any kind of competitive differences aside and and said hey there's more to be gained by the community that we can build and really it's about education right because Mm -hmm. this never used to be a department it was never understood between you know in the traditional canon of filmmaking so uh we we really we put on even like a a conference or two and we had meetups locally here in la um had really good attendance and we did it for many years to the point where we were just like wow we've really educated a lot of people and and now it seems to be uh spinning off out of control uh, (laughs) and like with um without our influence. So we decided to kind of wrap up the society itself. And it was a lot of the intent behind that was absorbed into David Morin and some of the work that he did with the Virtual Production Society mm-hmm. and um, an onward into Jean-Michel Real-Time Society and, yep. and all of that. So mm-hmm. that's, really, that's really great. I definitely want to get into uh, the Real-Time Society because we're both uh, members of that. And we've been, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I, the growth of the third floor has been absolutely spectacular to me. I mean, just seeing those, like just, it's just such an important part of, of, of Hollywood really. Uh, and also just filmmaking at large, but you must have seen some huge changes in, in how people approach films, uh, uh, in terms of what they're doing, how they think of technology and how they start to, to, uh, you know, the different stages at which they take advantage of the things that you guys are doing. How would you say it has changed mm-hmm. over the last 20 years or so? Well, you know, it kind of goes in, in phases, right? You know, the early days was just about trying to find any customer that would believe that try before you buy is a good plan. Right. I seemed to make logical sense to us. So we were like, it's inevitable, right? Everyone's going to want to do this eventually. They just don't know. Um, then, you know, around the time that Marvel Studios was set up and they were doing Iron Man 1 and beyond, we got involved in Iron Man 2 and then just sort of took off with them thanks to their benevolence and, and really Victoria Alonso taking chance on on me and, and us. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, Victoria. Um, it was a revolution for us because we ended up being able to expand and we were able to do so organically to the point where uh, we could preserve the level of quality film over film. Obviously, we were doing lots of other projects too outside of the Disney universe. Um, or at the time, Marvel <laughs> on its own. Um, but then I think, you know, in the last 
I would say eight to nine years, there's been an increasingly creeping in of real-time tools and workflows. So I'd mentioned virtual production before, but that's like the new one of the new fancy buzzwords around town because Mandalorian and other examples showed that, hey, an LED wall and, and a, a volume of in-camera visual effects can actually be a very, very exciting way to shoot an otherworldly film or a particularly challenging location in a repeatable way. And we were hearing all these people pontificate about how they're all you know, into virtual production and stuff. I'm like, that's great. Well, we've been into virtual production for 18 years, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> in one form or another. Sure. But I mean, granted, I'm surprised you didn't know about that because that was with, you know, Robert Zemeckis and, and Cameron, and a bunch of other mm-hmm. amazing pioneers that were really trying to do various aspects of virtual production, which we see not as just the LED wall, which is an important component of some types of virtual production. But the virtual production for me, the big V, is really all forms of real-time pre-production, production, and post-production, right? It's it's literally the integration of computer graphics live on set or in the preparatory process to make ready for the set. So the the dress rehearsal, if you will. Sure. And uh, recently... Maybe we can put it in the the chat or your page. We created this link to a video that we did all in the Unreal Engine. This was debuted first at the Directors Guild of America uh, this past year. Yep. And uh, it was an overview done by Casey Schatz, the amazing dynamic, our head of virtual production, who's been working with Cameron on um, Avatar, The Way of Water, and many other films before that. he embodied his knowledge of what's happening in virtual production on set from soup to nuts, from the moment an idea is launched all the way through that final image on screen and in the movie theater. Uh, So it's a nice little walkthrough. And if you watch that video, you guys will see that about 90% of the time that we take through this somewhat linear process to the end result is... um, is not being on set. There's so much work that goes into feeding a virtual production, a proper LED-based in-camera visual effects pipeline, and then there's all, all a lot of work afterwards. So, you know, we're evangelists for the pre-production part of it, and we've built fancy tools that are very easy to use, uh, that are a combination of virtual cameras, uh, and augmented reality overlays using HoloLens 2. But our most popular one is an AR device on an iPad we call Cyclops because Cyclops used to be, well, because iPads used to have only one camera on the backside. So we were like, oh, it's a single-eyed thing, mm-hmm. like a Cyclops, or reminds us of Ray Harryhausen, who <laughs> we loved. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so that... That app has been award-winning and uh, and actually used by so many VFX soups and and various personnel to essentially allow you to see what your virtual environment and characters will look like, whether static or in motion, and try out different camera moves. See, that it's basically like professional Pokemon Go, <laughs> and. Um, really easy to lay out and to try out different things. Like, for example, um, recently uh, we were working on Clifford the Big Red Dog, a film um, that included the big red dog at various scales. And the filmmakers had a ball going out and auditioning locations, malls, parking lots, parks, and things. And so we pre-animated little Clifford, um, who became Big Clifford, rolling over, running, walking, standing, different statures and all these things. They could conjure that up and see him literally hover in front of the camera and send all that feedback back to us, those recordings. So helpful to put that together. So anyways, that is what's really exciting to me about the virtual production revolution is it's putting the power back in the hands of the filmmakers. So we still are involved. We're doing a lot of prep work. We're making sure it all works for the moment, the, the glorious moment of exploration. But it really should be 
the director themselves, the DPs, the all of the traditional department heads like using tools like this to explore the possibilities and having a real conversation like, well, over there or bigger, how about the color? You know, all of these different things that you could uh, consider changing on the fly, at least in rough, and um, and making that be the footage for editorial. So there's a lot of thought going into what is the future of visualization and how does that become more of a of a performance, if you will? Right. Um, even if it is used for pre-production only and doesn't even have anything to do with visual effects, it's still you could use highly enhanced virtual production real-time workflows to make a live-action film with you know a very very simple plot that would be well thought out and and artfully blocked such that you have the most meaningful cinematic experience in the final film. I, uh, I'm so glad you said that because I've been thinking about that for a long time. I used to, you know, back in the 2013, 2012 era, there was, I saw that somehow as a little bit of a dark period in, in, in CG because the Hollywood was very anti-CG. I call it the life of pie days, right? They were not, Mm. there was a lot of dystopian feel, but at the same time I was thinking about the filmmakers who, sit in a big blue room <laughs> and with a couple of actors and then just had to imagine what was going to be there, hand it over to the visual effects company and hope for the best. And it really must have been very hard for them to be thinking of themselves as filmmakers at that time. Yeah. And I think that what you just said is exactly right. Do you think that directors now are excited to be part of the CG process from the beginning because of the real time is enabling that to happen? Well, I don't speak for all directors, and all directors are different. So, right. but we're seeing a trend towards getting more traditional filmmakers excited about the creative process that computer graphics enables because of basically real time workflows, game engines uh, driving that at the core. But it's really the interfaces around the the graphics engine that allows it to feel a lot like a simulation of what they do normally in their lives. Um, so, for example, like a DP, they many DPs used to uh, just ignore the previs uh, because they they were they explained to me once actually at the. Um, at the ASC clubhouse, <laughs> I was there um, presenting passionately, like, here's our pre-visualization. And um, I think it was Vil- Vilmos Zygmunt was there. And mm-hmm. he was saying, Chris, thanks for all this, but uh, I don't get it. Um, when I go out on set, I just have to be there to see the lighting and to see what's not there and to strike the lights and to feel the mood and all of these things. And I go, I'm so sorry. You know, what we're doing is we're, we're doing the camera mechanics part of blocking and testing out angles. We're not, we, you're right. We're totally overlooking the magic of cinema, which is mostly to do with light, you know, and combined right. with the camera angle and the, the lens characteristics and all of that stuff. But it's the light that, that, photographs the image you know sure that it makes it indelible so um it's because of the graphics engines and the upgrades that we have now to be able to simulate lighting in a more pleasing and realistic way that now all the dps are starting to come back and like you know i'll consider getting involved in that because i'll learn a lot because the light response is similar to what i might expect when i'm out on set and yeah. in fact, now I'm being tasked to have practical lights match the virtual lights, and and let's not leave it all to compositing to to fix our mistakes. Yeah, you know, or or things not even mistakes, but things that they couldn't have predicted um, until they see that final image. So being able to see it in real time makes it so much more spontaneous, which which really I is synonymous with the magic of filmmaking, right? Sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah I'm, I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to tell you more about what I've been doing with uh, Vantage, which is our our real time ray tracer, and how we're integrating it with Unreal Ooh. to get real time. Yeah, ray hook tracing. us up, <laughs> hook us up, Chaos Labs. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank for sure. you. Uh, Go, uh, I wanted to mention real quick uh, because it, it reminded me of I had mentioned Casey, but yeah, Casey Shots has uh, been 
a genius creator of a system that uh, was used heavily to give actors reference mm -hmm. on set for Avatar to the Way of Water. Okay. And it's called, affectionately, the eyeline system, I believe. Yes. This is something where basically his idea was, let's get an iPad-ish device. It is more of a monitor, right. smaller. And let's let's actually track the position of the the original performer's face and movement in the 3D space. And let's now develop this eyeline system where a spider cam can be moving around accurately in 3D in actual physical space, that monitor showing that performance. So literally, if someone's coming up and, you know, racing up to the face of another actor yeah. and saying, like, you're going to do it no matter what, you know, and scaring that person, it literally would move towards that second actor. So on Avatar, my understanding from what James Cameron said during the uh, director's day was that it was very pivotal to be able to shoot performances across times yep. meaning that they may not have the all the performers in the same place at the same time partially because of the pandemic and partially because of age restrictions and things you know different ages they wanted the actors to be at different times and because of the scale changes obviously of the navi and all that they needed to um, compensate for all of that and provide the accurate reference which would have been the silly tennis ball or the guy trying to perform generally what it was right. for the eyelines. Now you have a very, you know, computer aided way of doing that. And it was uh, revolutionary, I, I believe, for the actors and their uh, their performances to be all the more natural. I I did see, I went to HPA a couple of weeks ago to the HPA tech retreat and I saw that demo and i was like that's impressive because there is mm. so much that first of all i just got to say that what that that movie is one of the most impressive cinematic experiences i've seen in a long time it just blew me away I agree. Uh, and the fact that they got those performances to be so good with each other was in, mm -hmm. incredibly impressive because knowing that probably some of the action that was happening was probably years apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, it's just like with previous, you know, it's, it's a testament to the actors and their sure. versatility. Ultimately, you know, they laid down those performances, but hopefully uh, the work that Casey did and on some of the other pre-production and in fact, the, the entire team yeah. supporting the, um, the filmmaker and Lightstorm and the studio uh really is what made this come together so impressively. Right. And so crossing my fingers for Academy Awards night coming up uh, yeah, for the visual effects. It's going to be very, very, very exciting. I, I'm, I'm, I was very, I don't see why they wouldn't win, but uh, uh, I'm very, <laughs> I think they're going to be, they're going to do really, really well. Um, mm. So I, I'm, I'm very excited. I, I could talk to you about virtual production forever, but I still have <laughs> 10 minutes left and I want to make sure we can cover something that I think is going to be interesting. Cause I'd love to hear your take on it. I've been asking a lot of people about yeah. where they think that uh, a lot of the new tools that are just, just coming out like on an hourly basis, AI tools are coming out on an hourly basis. How do you feel mm. about those tools? And especially since they seem so good at conceptualizing things so quickly, how do you think that's going to affect what you guys are doing or the way that you guys operate? Well, you know, I also was caught a little by surprise like everyone at how fast the development has been but i've seen you know the terminator movies a lot so it didn't actually in <laughs> retrospect didn't surprise me that you know uh, cyberdyne systems is is uh, is increasing in in potency that fast in an exponential way but you know actually i find it not very intimidating um, but actually a plus because for us you know we're really following in the tradition of the basically the model miniature makers that used to, if you remember um, in that book that I mentioned, uh, uh, the little black, uh, the pretty large black book of ILM, uh, Art of Special Effects, uh, they detail how they would go out and get a bunch of kits from the local model shop where it's like trains, planes, and automobiles, 
and they would just use it for raw materials. It was kit bashing, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the Millennium Falcon and and all of the uh, the Death Star and stuff, there's little bits and pieces of other models and a lot of custom stuff too. But to get all the nernies in there, that that is sourced from those kits. So I'm thinking that the AI 3D model generation capabilities can be in, you know, just a a resource for true designers to say, oh, you know, give me a little bit of this, give me a little bit of that. Okay, computer, you know, it like in a holodeck, it brings stuff up that's worth considering. You go, okay, let me take pieces of this and pieces of that and combine it. The the final conjunction of all those things really should come together for the next foreseeable future under the watchful eye and guidance of a true human artist who is aware of all the other variables on the project, you know, the style of the director, what they actually asked them to do, you know, what the scene needs, um, the, the human experience interpretation that has to go into applying a certain design um, choice to a film. So for us, it doesn't really make too much of a difference, but we see it as a, as a, as a boom to um, productivity. Um, you know, because we're not finaling the image, if you will, then uh, we're affected maybe less than others. Perhaps AI itself will be good at polishing um, abnormalities and things that might have been taking place in, in compositing. So maybe that's one of the fields that's going to be uh, renovated in a, in a more uh, substantial way. But um, but for me, it's about this entire revolution of just computer graphics, Moore's Law going, you know, exponentially more powerful, exponentially more detailed, and having zero limitations for the filmmakers in terms of the complexity of of geometry in a scene, and and uh, you know. Uh, but above and beyond all of that stuff that's going to come from the Epic Games is in the NVIDIAs of the world and the major software developers, it really is incumbent upon the the generalist artists of the world to come up with what's the workflow that works. Given all of these ever-changing advantages of faster this and faster that and AI generated this, like what? how does that affect the workflow? And that's why we created that video that I referred to to say, this is the workflow we see working now. Um, we're going to use it as a document to constantly upgrade it and say, oh, actually, now that step doesn't make any sense anymore. We've combined it with this one. Um, so like in Previs itself, one needs to be nimble and responsive to whatever's happening in the world. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's interesting. I don't I don't know how it's going to affect different areas. I just know that almost everything in computer graphics and filmmaking will be affected by the, by this, these innovations. I think the user generated content uh, will be the one thing that this will be used a lot in. So, you know, all the, the YouTubers, the, the influencers and stuff will be able to use AI generated stuff as like sort of the, sort of the elevated clip art, if you will. And so, you know, that maybe folks that are not computer savvy, um, in the traditional visual effects sense, we'll be able to command a pretty powerful looking result uh, by using these tools, but it will still appear somewhat generic for the you know the time being. And um, so I'm not too worried about the professionals in our current industry that are you know typically working on very bespoke and very you know the top tier projects that, that need to be designed in a custom way. Yeah, um, for sure. yeah. But it is also exciting too because we talk a little bit about the metaverse and um, and I know you know that's the next big buzzword everyone's talking about and uh, I I really I'm excited about this opportunity too because you really think about well what is the future of the internet itself and those various locales on the internet are going to get increasingly less two D and more three dimensional which then makes it feel like a 3D playset like we would do in Previs, if all of our assets are real-time anyways, maybe maybe there we could pivot to be a designer for these types of experiences, stories and worlds that take place uh, in, the, in the metaverse. 
I mean, we did pitch Viz and early development on Ready Player One, so I still feel like an obligation <laughs> to contribute to that future. Yeah. Um, maybe we set expectations a little too high at first with Steven and, and the original source material, but um, but yeah, I mean, we're excited about that and what are the possibilities for cross-platform storytelling between traditional films, the episodic spinoff series, the experiential entertainment location-based experience that is the companion one, like Stranger Things experience, you know, for example. And um, and then the metaverse component of that, where you can go regardless of boundaries, regardless of how much money you make or what your means are. As long as you have a computer or a device, you too can experience all of these things. So that to me is very exciting. It's a great equalizer for consumers out there to experience the future of storytelling. Yeah, well, that's that's a really really good way to, to, to put it. Uh, I do want to talk a little <laughs> real quickly about uh, Real-Time Society. You are a member, uh, a member of that. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on at the Real-Time Society with you? Yeah, so Real-Time Society and the Real-Time Conference is the brainchild of Jean-Michel Blottier, who some of you old school folks know are is he was the curator of FMX, the famous Stuttgart, Germany, art and technology convention that really is in a kind of an elevated European SIGGRAPH, if you will. Right. <laughs> a very cool kids, you know, atmosphere. A lot of studio executives would go there and and present visions that are even more, I don't know, forthcoming than what they might show in Hollywood. So maybe it was because of the German beer and stuff and, and good food and whining and dining. But uh at the end of the day, um, that is the brilliance of Jean-Michel. And so now he has this new society and the new conference events that are happening around real-time society that are um, really tackling some of the issues we touched on today. So our role in that is to contribute to a think tank that is discussing all of the uh, innovations in virtual production and some of the the media and entertainment use cases for real-time society we've done uh, um, or for real-time technology. Uh, we've done some conferences. We've done some bespoke videos that that showcase our tools and workflows on specific projects. And we're looking forward to, and there's like a VIP event happening pretty soon in, uh, in New York City, which will be the Economic Forum and this is uh, going to be focusing on, okay, what are the underpinnings that we need to tackle in order to make virtual production easier, more accessible, and more affordable to all? Um, so that uh, the Real-Time Economic Summit, I think, is what it's called. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the next step there. But we're, we're very happy that there's this vibrant community of real-time evangelists and working professionals and uh, I think it's probably me talking a little less than my CTO and, and <laughs> developers getting more involved in these these higher level discussions, but it's uh it's been it's been a good journey so far. Yeah, I've I've actually been part of it myself. I've been very excited about it and knowing that you're you're there too. It's always good to have great voices. I think one of the things that I'm excited about it is the fact that it's not just media and entertainment, there's actually other industries that are tackling similar problems mm -hmm. that you may not have heard of before. And they're finally able to bet through people in the same room and then make them maybe solve well, one problem instead of two problems. <laughs> I mean, the operative word is convergence, right? Yeah, it sounds yep. cliche, but we are actually all converging around real-time workflows. Yep. And there's a lot we can learn from each other. For sure. And I think because of visual effects community being so entrepreneurial and so ambitious and so masochistic in some regard, we have built up a such a body of knowledge and tools and code and awesome uh, experience that probably is leaps and and, and uh, bounds beyond what a lot of other comparable sectors in various other industries are doing with the similar hardware and similar software. So um, I feel like we have an obligation to spread the word and to make it some of the quirky things we do relevant in other sectors too, like architecture and product design, um, even location-based entertainment. We design a lot of the Universal Studios theme park attractions in concert with sure. their Imagineers, if you will. Mm -hmm. they're, they're a group called Universal Creative, and we've been blessed to design uh, aspects of and the main e-ticket attraction for 
the uh, Super Nintendo World in Osaka, Japan, and now opening, uh, it's already open in uh, here in Universal Studios, yeah. Hollywood. Um, so, the, you know, other things that you do, may not know about Third Floor, we designed tons of video game cinematics. We even contribute to architectural visualizations sometimes, do a ton of Super Bowl commercials and things like that, yep. and uh, and lots of episodic stuff. So pretty much everything from Game of Thrones to Lucasfilm um, uh, franchises. We're just so blessed to be a part of their family and kind of invited into the the inner circle of those high high end virtual productions. Uh, coming up soon, we have a lot of work that went into uh, Mandalorian season three. Uh, out in theaters now is Ant Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Mm -hmm. So you can see all of the hard transition work that <laughs> we worked on there. Dungeons and Dragons coming up soon, uh, Shazam 2, Fury of the Gods, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in May, and Transformers Rise of the Beasts for something completely different uh, in June, on June 23rd. So it's just uh, these days we have... That's an incredible lineup. <laughs> uh, it's it, As I said, it's a snowball that I can't stop. We have um, usually... 25 to 35 projects going on at any given time around the world. Wow. A single project could be like a little commercial for a couple of weeks, or it could be a giant blockbuster that needs to be pre-visualized seven times over and take um, over a year, maybe a year and a half to um, for the complete visualization support process. So wow, it's a wild ride and um, hats off to my team and all the just awesome supervisors, leads, creative personnel, uh, production teams, support networks, all the L&D folks, the pipeline team, I, IT, everyone at Third Floor who just rocks it every day and puts their true passion into it uh, to make any of this possible. It's just, I feel so blessed and fortunate to have them in, in our company. Well, thank you. This I think that's a great way to, to end it, Chris. Thank you so much for being part of this. I've been wanting to do a podcast with you for quite some time. I'm gladly finally got it done, and we were able to talk at this very opportune moment. So looking forward to seeing you. I will probably be at the Economic Summit myself, so we'll probably see you in New York. Awesome. But uh, cross paths. Yeah, but thank you again so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much. <laughs>